Hello, I'm Pippa. And I'm Kate. Welcome to A Practical Guide to Death. This discussion episode shares a conversation between writer Annie Siddons and end-of-life doula and former therapist Katrina Tay. They're discussing Annie's play, The Tower. So if you haven't already listened to that, maybe pause this episode now, listen to that one first so you don't hear any spoilers. And if you have already heard The Tower, then we hope you find listening to this conversation interesting. Hi, I'm Annie. I wrote The Tower and I'm very happy to be joined by Katrina Tay, who is an end-of-life doula specialising in grief for this podcast. Hi, Katrina. Hi, Annie. Thanks for having me here. Pleasure. Well, shall I tell you a little bit about um, myself and how I came into grief? I was a nurse originally, so I I have a medical background for a while Mm -hmm. but I was actually a counsellor for 18 years of which 13 I worked in a hospice helping the families after death so I worked with a a lot of grief Mm -hmm. I'm now an end-of-life doula and I specialize in grief and help the doulas with that as well as well as obviously our clients and uh I don't know if you know Annie, but I've I've co-written an illustrated guide to grief called "Surviving the Tsunami of Grief." Oh wow! So it was really exciting to me to be asked to come on and read your book, read your play about grief, because there's just so many interesting aspects to it. Great! Uh, is your book out now? It is. Yes, it's been out for about a year and a half. And um, we sell, yeah, we, we're doing well with it. It's um, it's very different sort of book because it's not a written book as in chapters. It's mm-hmm. about, it's set against the metaphor of a tsunami, the different phases of that and illustrated beautifully so that even if people even just look at the pictures, they would understand the journey of grief. But it's, we've used all the, words and the sort of things that people have said to us and the experiences they've had within grief as little sound bites. So it's a very dip in and dip out of sort of book on any given day. And I think that's helpful for people who are grieving. Probably probably not Shauna. She wouldn't be ready for it. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yes, yeah, she would. She she wouldn't relate to it. I don't think. Yeah. Well, she's a survivor, isn't she? And yeah. she's created a structure of control and avoidance and compartmentalization around herself in order to make sense of things and survive things. And she's already doing that before her mum dies. So her mum was an alcoholic and so she's been brought up around chaos and you know very a a lot of loss of control a lot of 
anxiety, a lot of fear and a lot of abandonment. And so she's created this identity for herself that involves, yeah, a, a very high level of control and a very high level of not going there. But when Mary dies and with the events, I don't know if people have already listened to the play when they... <laughs> I think they have. So when Mary dies and when she finds out how she dies... Um, and then when the subsequent strange events start to take place, it's a real challenge to th the structure of the world that she's created for herself. And maybe you could say, maybe her mum is, you know, it depends on your belief system. And this isn't how I wrote it, but I kind of wanted it to work on this level maybe Mary is doing a final good thing for Shauna and kind of challenging her to rethink her belief system I quite like that because you know we could put we can project our own take onto it can't we as mm -hmm. a listener that's what I did when I listened what did to you it. think it was I thought Mary felt well, I was the word that was going to come to mind yeah. was evil. I don't think, obviously, she's not an evil woman, but no. I didn't feel she was very kind to Shauna. You didn't feel her intentions no. with that visitation were kind? No, I didn't. <clears throat> I mean, I wonder, you know, gosh, we don't know why somebody might visit a daughter, but if we were just to sort of step out of the reality of it all, you know, I'm imagining that Mary felt a lot of guilt about being an alcoholic. Yeah. At some level. Yeah. And, of course, Shauna, like you were saying, she's really had to build up her safety. Mm hmm That tower. <laughs> she's had to build all her boundaries and I bet yeah. if I asked her in a therapy session, which I doubt very much she'd probably come to anyway mm. at the moment, where yeah. she is at the moment, yeah. and we were talking about that, Annie, but yeah. I think you'd find her very, very defended. She's keeping her grief away. She's keeping her mother away. She's keeping her, her life in order to feel safe. Exactly. So that's really, as she says about herself, avoidant personality. Somebody yeah. who doesn't want to feel her feelings. Um, yeah. And of course, that's really difficult for her because I think the science and the research shows that people who are avoidant of grief um, might actually have a longer grieving period. That's what it looks like Shauna's going to have unless she takes the offer that's made to her at the end. Yeah, what do you think about that? We, we, we were just, weren't we? We were just quickly chatting before this podcast to say what would happen at the end of this play. Yeah, I mean... I don't want to say too much in case I managed to write a chapter two, but what we were talking about was that probably sh the Shauna that we know at the moment would probably triple down as a result of that visitation and not 
embrace her feelings, her shadow, her unconscious life, everything below the rational, everything below language. She probably wouldn't. She probably double down into the world of ego control, more science, more rules, more boundaries, more more compartments until it didn't work anymore. Yeah. And the, the thing is, Shauna's got a hell of a lot of willpower because she has taken herself from a highly dysfunctional, you know, kind of not even working class, kind of criminal underclass is the unfortunate demographic that is used for her background. She's taken herself from there to a research scientist in Cambridge, which is just a wild ride, which, you know, there's not a lot of reference points for. So she she has willed herself into that position which has meant she's, you know, she's stubborn, she's closed, she's hyper-focused. All those things have really served her. And now in her grief, they're, they're not going to serve her. They're going to impede her healing properly. That's, that's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a therapist, but that's the perspective from which I wrote her, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I... I think the really difficult and sad thing about grief is that oftentimes we don't we don't want to be grieving. It's so difficult and the feelings are so intense. And if we can find ways to emotionally regulate that, yeah, then we're going to be very drawn to those. And um afterwards I was thinking about um the model of grief from strobe and shoot, yeah. Where, if you, for example, had a child who died, the father might be showing a lot of restorative grief and that sort of going back to work and and getting on with things and being quite practical routines. And, routines, yeah. very important yeah. routines, and the mother might be. Are much more emotional and they might not be meeting each other in their understanding. Mm-hmm. What people who are grieving really need is something that Shauna d- doesn't have actually, is they they need both to feel the pain of the loss, to work through it in time, no set time. There is, I don't believe there's set times for these things. Mm. But they also do need some chance to be in normal life and use those restorative skills so that you can go to the supermarket and buy the food you need or you can go to work without breaking down all day in the toilets or feeling that you can't be there. And I think what's happened to Shauna because of her avoidant personality, she's all in the restorative part. Yeah. And that that's that's tough for her, although she doesn't realise it. You know, I feel a lot of empathy for her. Yeah. Because oh, she doesn't realise what's happening. We, we were saying, weren't we, that she's very unconscious to her process. She's yeah. in her normal life. It feels normal and the grief hasn't, the death of that traumatic death being hard. So hit. traumatic. 
by that 106 bus, yeah. Annie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would do do sometimes people like that um go into a sort of physical illness like because I I believe sometimes like the body has a wisdom or like the psyche has a wisdom to it that can sometimes help you despite yourself. And I suppose, you know, maybe she would get really physically ill so that she had to stop like do, what kind of things happen to people that can sometimes allow them force them to stop the mm. routines and and feel the thing well i i actually believe myself and i've experienced yeah. myself that grief is about 80% physical this just yeah. this isn't research based so please don't anybody quote me on this but it's about 80% yeah. physical and 20% emotional and mental and yeah. social um, experience that we have. And those sort of physical things that happen to you are feeling incredibly tired, not sleeping well. I think you mentioned that, didn't you, in, yeah. in, the, in the play. Perhaps having irregular eating or disordered eating, maybe yeah. eating too much, drinking too much finding physical ways to make that better, be that perhaps um, too much TV, drugs or alcohol or sex, different ways that people might soothe themselves. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it is a, an experience that makes you feel very, very physically heavy, heavy in your heart, heavy in your stomach, your gut can have a lot of um, physical side effects. And those sort of things can spiral. And it's a well-known fact that people who are grieving, their, their um, immune system is down. So they're having a hard time. They often get, um, you know, minor illnesses, coughs, colds, uh, flu, or COVID right now, probably. Yeah. So it definitely affects you physically. And that long-standing stress of being the child of an adult alcoholic, yeah. that's stressful, Annie. Yeah, incredibly, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you were saying just before we started recording that you felt that Shauna's grief was complicated grief. And um, I was delighted to hear that because that's what I wanted to write was the study of somebody suffering from complicated grief. But um, what made you recognise that in Shauna? Well, I thought about way back in my in my own life. I I remember. My brother died in a very traumatic mountaineering accident in 1979. God. And about, um, let me think, about 10 years after that, a, a girlfriend, um, I was living in America at the time, rang me up and told me that her mother had died. Mm. And I listened to her and I wasn't a therapist in those days. 
and I listened to her and that was fine. And then about three days later, she rang me back in a rage and asked me why I hadn't been in touch, why wasn't I supporting her, why hadn't I gone round to her house. And I honestly just didn't know what she was talking about. I had absolutely no idea what she was saying. I didn't understand. And I'd just gone into therapy and I, I was asking my therapist, you know, saying this woman rang me and she was so cross with me and I, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I spoke to her, what, what's she talking about? And we unpicked it a bit and she asked me, you know, well, what is it in you that you don't think you don't need to talk to her? I said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But of course, it was because I had totally suppressed the traumatic death of my own brother. For 10 years. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I had just gone along saying, well, it's, he died, that's sad. My mum's really having a hard time. My dad's having a hard time. My sister's having a hard time. But I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh, wow. So that's interesting. So do you think that was you were aware of the others having a hard time and you were trying to be okay because they weren't? Because someone has to be. I think partly that. I think yeah. to see your parents unravel yeah. is, is very, very difficult. Can you hear my cat, by the way? Is that the cat from the play? No, Lisa used her cat for the play. This is my cat, Rush. I've got two. This is Rush. It's just come to see what's going on. Well, I hope she doesn't knock anything over. He, we he might probably both will. Jump. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so... That's incredible. So you ha you'd kind of suppressed everything for 10 years. I did. And then, just like Shauna, you know, actually, it that trigger of that woman saying that to me and being in therapy and working through that and really starting to understand what a loss it was... Yeah. ..is a sort of collapse into grief... And your play leaves Shauna just at that moment when we don't quite know what's going to happen to her. We don't know, no. And that's very interesting to me from my own experience. I really, you know, we said a moment ago, didn't we, that we hope that she could have some kind of understanding about the way she was dealing with it. Yeah. And how she was dealing with her life. But, you know, also from the aspect, you know, I, I'm the adult child of an alcoholic. My yeah. mum was an alcoholic, although it was only diagnosed later in life. Her behaviour throughout her life was very irregular. Yeah. And it's very, these are very difficult things because... You're when I think when you're the adult child of an alcoholic, you're walking around tiptoeing on eggshells not to upset the person because it's all very chaotic. That's true, that's totally true. But you were already it was, were you in therapy for not your grief, if that's not too personal? Because that, that's incredible that you yeah. just started, so you had a container. 
Yes. Because I feel like Shauna doesn't have a container because she doesn't invite that kind of vulnerability in her relationships where she's ever going to be the one being held or the one, even the one holding actually, but she's she doesn't invite that kind of vulnerability at all, does she? Not at all. She's completely shut down, isn't she, Annie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of other things about Shauna are um, illustrative of complicated grief, either in what she suffers or her reactions to it? Well, I I, I thought that her her comments about her relationships were very interesting, weren't they? That she Do you want to say more? Yes, yeah, I will. Well, I was really reflecting on that idea that she went to the museum to meet her dates and she was on yeah. two dating sites, so she wanted to date. Yep. And then she sort of sussed them out at the museum, which is actually a sure, very sensible thing to do. But then she would take them back to the flat, presumably for sex. Yeah. But then they were just out. There there was no ongoing relationship. So she scratched her itch, so to speak. But she never engaged in a relationship. And and that, that makes life quite lonely and quite difficult although I suspect for her it's it isn't lonely and difficult in in her day-to-day experience it would probably be harder having a partner in the flat with her yeah at the moment that would be hell on earth for her to have to deal with the messiness of day-to-day intimacy would be a nightmare yeah and also with respect to her grief, you know, I really wondered, and I, I've certainly experienced this myself, about the the child within her, the yeah. longing for a normal mum. Yeah. You know, when your mum dies and she's an alcoholic or you have a difficult relationship with her, which even though my mum wasn't drinking at the end of her for the last, I think, 10 years of her life. Okay. Her behaviour was very similar to how it had been when she was drinking. She had dry drunk, what they call dry drunk. Yeah, that's right, a dry drunk. Can you explain to our listener what a dry drunk is in case... Well, I I don't know if, if I know enough to explain it scientifically, but put it this way, I think my sister and I were really excited when she went into treatment. Yeah. And we thought that this was going to be the big change and we were going to get this mum back from treatment who was going to be this warm, fuzzy, pink and fluffy, not angry person anymore. And that just wasn't really the case. And that the behaviours were all the same, although I think in reality she had quite a lot of mental health problems. Yeah. And that complicated it. So, but but even as an adult woman, as a therapist who understood grief so well, I recognised that I just wanted a nice mum who was a bit more mum-like. Of course. And when she died, that that wish is over. 
And what do you do with that, Annie? What does Shauna do with that? Well, what what do you think, um, you know, the strange experiences that she has in the play, mm. What? how do you explain them? What do you think's going on, really? Well, as a therapist and as a doula, Mm. I've always just tried to meet people where they are. And I have had many clients who have had experiences of one sort or another, be it um, lights flashing at night and feeling that um, it's their partner or their dead wife or husband. I've had people who felt that their partner has laid down very close to them on the bed at night. I've had people have visitations to the end of their bed as they were dying from their lost spouse. I People who hear song, their song all the time. Yeah. White feathers. It doesn't matter what it is. It, it, there, could, there are many, many manifestations of that sort not quite as um, explicit as Shauna's, but who am I to say? Because I don't know, in fact, if that is the dying person, dead person trying to contact them. Maybe it is. You know, I like to think of it as an end-of-life doula. I like to think of it as a huge mystery But if I was to look at it with a more scientific brain, Mm -hmm. I think one could say that her personality is cracking in some way. There's Mm. a there's a it's been cleaved by what happened with the with the glass and the jug and the the uh, coffee pot and so forth. And, and the song coming on the radio. The song and, and hearing her mother's voice. It is interesting because I I do think that, we, well, it's one of the great ironies, you know, I, I never want to hear my mother's voice again in some ways, some parts of me. Yeah. And in other parts, I hear her voice all the time. The sorts of things she would say to me mm-hmm. and my sister they come into my head or I say them to my own children. That's incredible. You, you think, you'll never say that and then you do. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. I also am aware of that as a parent. <laughs> um, but there's something about the extreme physical. If Shauna is in denial about her grief, she's still feeling some of the in- the physical symptoms of it, isn't she? Like we know she's feeling the insomnia and we know she's feeling anxious, although she's not naming it as anxiety. Mm. But from my experience of grief, the extreme insomnia, like extreme insomnia going on for months and months and months, it does heighten your senses in strange ways and I think sometimes when you're I I got to a point where it was the opposite of Shauna kind of I just felt like I was underwater like sounds were really muffled and I couldn't see 
I couldn't even see properly. Everything felt underwater. But I know that there is a sort of retuning of our responses to our senses when we're in an extreme physical state, whether it's just normal exhaustion or whether it's grief-induced exhaustion. So I, I wonder if that kind of exhaustion makes you more susceptible to hearing and seeing visitations and that that kind of thing because you are kind of inadvertently opening doors whether you want to or not does that make sense it does i mean i think lack of sleep you know there's no there's a reason that it was used as a torture exactly it is yeah. like a it yeah. is like a torture yeah. i always feel physically ill when i'm tired i'm i'm yeah. very intolerant of being tired I'm not somebody that can power on through it. I think it dissembles us. It dissembles our psyche. It dissembles our bodies. It dissembles our digestion. We can't function. And then we are more open to difficult feelings, things that might happen to us, the way we interpret them. Yeah. And we might get that wrong or right. It doesn't, you know, I don't know which it would be, but we are, we're not ourselves and we're definitely not our barricaded selves, are we? I mean, no. to some extent, Annie, we've all got a mask on. Sure. You know, I mean, we go out. Very literally, door. most of the time these days. Well, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. But, um, but is it, is there an argument that, the body's wisdom helps propel someone into going through grief even if they don't want to so like you know if you're if you're not sleeping if you're not eating you know if, and it, all of those things not eating not sleeping maybe using substances is kind of affecting your perceptions couldn't that be an invitation to start processing somehow yes. because you're altering your perception so is that a kind of wisdom that the body has to kind of help you along well I've always thought of that you know I'm really particularly thinking about the first uh, 12 weeks sort of 6 to 12 weeks mm. I think that um, Mary was killed two months before wasn't she she was killed two months before Shauna found out. Which found is, out, that's yeah. right. To, that's and now right. six months before the recording. Yes, yeah. so this is how I would think of it as a therapist. Yeah. The first, roughly, roughly up to about eight to ten weeks, particularly if there's been a traumatic death, is really a period of shock. Yeah. So she didn't know she died. So imagine that her shock and a very big one, a huge shock to the system to hear about this traumatic death and also having, you know, that that whole talk about the decomposition of the body and her thinking about that. That came at roughly two months. Yeah. So at six months, she's barely coming through the shock and actually what tends to happen to people is they are in a, 
a, a period of shock. They won't be going around saying, oh, I'm in shock, I'm shocked. They'll no. be saying things like, I'm so tired, I don't want to talk to people, my legs feel really heavy, I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating well, I don't know what I'm doing, or I feel completely numb, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not crying, what's wrong with me? Or I'm crying so much that I can't even get out of the house. So there can be a whole spectrum of symptoms that come forward. But what tends to happen, and this would be happening to, to um, Shauna just at this time, round about that six-month mark, but shorter, of course, because of not knowing, is that the reality of the loss is starting to come home to her. So if you like, think of it like that empty space, it's not that she wanted to be with her mother, but her mother now isn't there. And that is when I believe very often grief gets worse and it often coincides with people saying to you, well, six months have gone by, aren't you feeling better now? Or the support tails off because it's actually been quite a long time and potentially friends are getting a bit tired of hearing the old, old story again. Yeah, and they're getting tired of doing the casserole rotor and the, you know. Yeah, the casserole rotor. It's yeah, probably you know stopped I mean, the... by now. It yeah. will have stopped after probably a month, to be honest, yeah. And that's at just at the point at which it's all beginning, actually. Exactly, when you need more help. So I thought that the timing in the play was very interesting when you think about that. Yeah. Things were going to get harder for Shauna, not easier. Because Shauna's then left in this weird space of having to have a conversation with herself that touches on her mum because of her job and the drugs that she's researching and then because of all the weird stuff that happens, she has to start the journey somehow right at the end yeah even if she then just draws the duvet back over her head and reverts and that's the thing isn't it we can go along being unconscious unconsciously unconscious (laughs) if you like we don't even know that there's anything deeper or further down in our psyche or our feelings or our thoughts or how we are as a person in the world. We're just going about our business day to day, humdrum. And and it being relatively successful too, which leads it to perpetuate because that's a good thing because we get to work and we have our friends and we feed our cat and we're happy and we don't have to be in a relationship or be in one or whatever it is you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, But in Shauna's case, you know, we talked about that barricaded, boundaried self that is coping. And that is also a self-emotional regulation tool because she's quite even-keeled. But at some point, usually something triggers 
that little first opening, that little chasm that you sort of drop down, you think, oh, what, what's going on here? Oh, I'm suddenly feeling very uncomfortable or very sad or, oh, I don't want to be here and you scramble back up to the top. But the crack is the crack is there, and I think that's what happened to Shauna. Yeah, we we kind crack. of leave her looking into the crack and wondering what the hell she's going to do. I think it's interesting as well in that, in a way, Mary kind of has more access to coping mechanisms than Shauna does because, um, so. I don't really want to talk about my own lived experience here, but um, I am the daughter of a preacher who I violently rejected all of his beliefs at a really young age and for various reasons. And Shauna has has kind of wholesale rejected everything to do with Mary. So because she's had to reject her as a mother and reject her being an alcoholic, she's also had to reject her Catholicism and her use of tarot and spirituality, which actually might be really helpful for her in this case. I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to be religious or use tarot cards, absolutely not. But I'm saying that sometimes we need a non-rational approach to things sometimes being hyper rational that's that's why you know cbt is great isn't it but it it goes so far it doesn't go to the depths that's why we have other forms of therapy and like somatic therapy like you know and and psychosynthesis which is what you used to Mm. do and all of those things and i feel like shauna needs something like that some kind of because it provides a language it it provides a safety net for talking about very difficult feelings if you're someone who cannot be vulnerable because it uses metaphor and you know it has rituals attached to it and objects attached to it and I think that often people find those mediators very helpful when working through extreme emotional states and Shauna's life is currently bereft of any of those opportunities. So we were talking earlier about, you said you thought Mary was evil. (laughs) Well, I thought her voice was quite scary. (laughs) You have to talk to the actress. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But I... Because we were we were talking about like what is it that is happening, and obviously we've already spoken about how it could just be an extreme sort of somatic grief response, or it could be Mary's ghost coming back to kind of help her daughter, or it could be Shauna's own internalized good mother pushing her. Well, I I would really like to think so, and I think <laughs> I, I think it could be. Because, you know, what? what's so important, Annie, to remember is that even within the most difficult relationships, and um, I know this and you probably do too. I do, yeah. There is some good 
it's not all bad. It won't have been all terrible. Terrible things may have happened, but there will have been moments of mothering that have gone in. And so she will carry those with her and probably her longing for her her mum or a different sort of mum is also because she has absorbed probably other mums mothering yeah as well you know it's not only going to be her own mum so and we watch films and we watch telly and we understand how it would be so it might be her own longing it might be the good mother that is embedded within her that she knows what a mum should do but in the end she comes to this point doesn't she with her lack of spirituality and this tarot card yeah really in her face about danger and crisis and destroying everything that feels secure and yet she's almost encouraged by her mum to just step over that line fuck science science might not be the be all and end all for shona as a therapy professional or like what would you like to happen for shona in episode mm. two? well in episode two. I would love to see Shauna go into therapy. I mean, I would say <laughs> that Annie, I was a therapist. But this is this is what would really help her because of course in counseling or psychotherapy or psychoanalysis as well, I'm sure a lot of the work done in counseling is done on a relational level. So what I mean by that is the relationship that is built up of trust and respect between the client and the therapist is where the deep work is done. Of course there's lots of other things that are done in therapy. But for for somebody like Shauna who as you say has no intimacy in her life it would be extremely uncomfortable to go into therapy it would probably feel like her skin is being pulled off piece by piece but in a way it's what needs to happen slowly over time somebody like shona you you're not going to rush her through therapy she's going to do it as much as she can bear at any given time so you if if she were my client i i would not be pushing her terribly hard in i i sort of mean that in a kind way but i wouldn't wouldn't be pushing her into places she doesn't want to go yeah. anytime soon i would be building our relationship and gently going around the edges until she gets a little bit of confidence and how how would you do like would would you for someone as kind of rational and logical and empirical and scientific as Shauna would you try and hit her at a different level or I don't no, know literally no I or, wouldn't no I wouldn't because as Sagioli who's the the um person who started psychosynthesis counseling always said 
meet like with like. Certainly at the beginning, I would be keeping it very much on her level. I would be meeting her where she is in her world and in a similar way. And when she when she would become to trust me more that I'm not going to take her down into the underworld like <laughs> Jung might or, you know, that, that sort of difficult yeah. places that she just so clearly doesn't want to go. I would be... But so clearly needs to go. So clearly needs to go at some some level, yeah. I would then be doing it that way. So I would meet her where she is. So that's quite a long therapeutic process. That's quite expen- That's going to be quite expensive for her. Yeah, well, it probably depends on the therapist. It probably depends where you live. It probably, you know, there are... are very good free counselling services around the country. I know there's waiting lists, but that might be an option for her. It's true, yeah, it's true, but... What what do you think would happen to her if she didn't heed the call, if she just said, that was a bit weird, I'm going to try and forget about it and go back to normal and I'm going to, you know, do even more batch cooking and even more running and even Mm. more casual sex and I'm just going to work harder and I'm going to find a new drug to research that's similar chemically so I can still, like, carry on my work and I'm just going to normalise as much as possible. What do you think? Obviously, she's fictional, (laughs) but what do you think could happen if that were the case well i think her grief's gonna catch her up annie but it could be in like 10 years or 20 years at some point there'll be another crack i think it's that there's this saying about grief you can't go over it you can't go under it you can't go around it you have to go through it and there's many different i don't I'm not prescriptive about that. There's no way to go through it. Each person's grief is their own landscape. And it's amazing to think about it as a landscape, actually. Yeah, that's really coming from my book, you know, out of the illustrations in my book. We say that. Oh, let's talk more about your book to finish (coughs) off because we've come full circle. So that's really nice. So tell me about the landscapes. Well, The book is set against the metaphor of a tsunami. And so the illustrations are the different phases of a tsunami. And so including the first one where it all sucks back. Yes. So So the the death, the death is depicted as what happens out in the ocean, some sort of cataclysmic event. That's the first bit. The shock is the sea pulling away and people not understanding what's happening. Because it, and then, the, the, it is literally like a rug being pulled from it. Because when you see, I've never been in a tsunami, thank goodness, but I've seen footage of them and it's yeah. mad seeing the sea go the wrong way. Like it's yes. it's really hard to understand. And that feels like, a it just feels like the rug being pulled from under you in the sense of like really not understanding what is happening and having no language or no metaphor for it because it's so out of your experience. 
Exactly. Well, that's captured it exactly what we were trying to talk about. And then, of course, remember we talked about that sort of period of shock and when the shock slowly wears off and the reality hits home. That's when we see the tsunami wave coming in. And that's that huge wave of grief. But with it come all different strands because I think... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about grief, that it's all perhaps about being sad. In fact, it's not. It's every feeling that you could name is within grief. And, of course, it's a very social experience or a very isolating experience. And also there's the practical side of it, the emotional side, the physical side, so and other things. So that all comes in. But... As it goes on, do you remember those terrible scenes of the tsunami where sure. there's no paths, it's just a whole morass of mess. And I think that that is, that is what I mean by the landscape. So, so like a chair on top of a goat, on top of a tree, on top of someone's yeah. house, all of yes. that kind of, the, the yeah. wrongness of it all. The wrongness. The mishmash of it. Yes. Very much so. It's all wrong and dark and difficult. And then eventually, of course, over a an unknown period of time, these little paths wend their way through this morass of mess. And slowly that place, in this case a beach um, within the book, in the illustrations, does start to clear And finally, you're left with your memories and also sort of reconnecting back out into the world where, but that beach that looked like that at the beginning now looks different because things have moved in it. And I think that's really important. And if we think about Shauna, really... She's stuck in shock. She is, yeah. With the sea going back. She doesn't know what's happening. And will she just leave the beach? Or will she wait and see what happens? It's interesting with the the, collect, the effort to clean up after a tsunami is a huge collective effort. It's yes. not something that can be done by one person. Everyone has to be involved. And was that part of the metaphor that you chose, that kind of the relational yes. aspect of getting through grief, the social aspect, the fact that it's a you know a community of people is affected and a community of people needs to get through it together? What Was that something that you had... We did, mind. because I think that's something we thought about a lot. And so the last three chapters of the book about how can people help the bereaved? Because there's a very sad saying, Annie, that grief rearranges your address book. And I've never that's met brutal, anybody. It's brutal. <clears throat> we were talking about Shauna's friend, weren't we? Did she not show up on the podcast for a reason? Or, you know, we don't know. Yeah. But, but. Unfortunately, people fall away. 
for different reasons and understandable reasons. I'm not judging them at all, but but I've never met anybody who is bereaved who's not lost one or two friends along the way. And it's quite hard, isn't it, to stand along grief, stand alongside grief and be there and listen and because grief takes a long time to work through. So so it, with respect to the community, one of the chapters we talk about is who can help and what actually helps so that people have got something a bit sort of Shauna, like what's concrete things that actually help. Like if you say you're going to walk the dog, please show up and walk the dog don't offer to do it and then just never show up. It's a simple thing, but it's so true. Like you said, the casserole train is over. Yeah. Well, what else can you do that might be helpful? There's so many things that we could do to help the bereaved because they're tired. You know, we spoke about that. So, yes, you you need your community. You need your tribe around you. And they can really help. And I feel that Shauna is quite, she feels quite alone in the play. And that that worries me as well. Yeah. She's got her little contacts, but she hasn't got a real tribe. She mentioned friends, so that was good. But Maybe she goes on a date to the Fitz and she meets someone who is just not having her. BS, you know, is just not having it Mm. and confronts her. Mm. Because sometimes you meet someone who can kind of see through (laughs) all your defence mechanisms and, um, you know, just cut straight to the heart of the matter. Yeah. But obviously she can't rely on that happening. But um, where can we buy your book? Where can we get your book from? um, What's its title? it's on Again? Amazon. If you, it's called Su- "Surviving the Tsunami of Grief for the Bereaved and Those Who Support Them." Amazing. And it's obviously on Amazon. Or other ethical booksellers. Yes, they are. And I'm suddenly just desperately trying to think what the other one is. Or you can buy it direct. Well, you do. The best thing to do, to be honest is to go to our website, because we've got a website for the book, www.tsunamiofgrief.com. Perfect. And you'll find different ways to buy it on there. Well, I found this conversation really rich and inspiring, and now I want to write episode two and maybe give Shauna a little bit of a reprieve. (laughs) And a little bit of a happy ending. Yeah. But um, it's been a delight to talk to you. And lovely to talk to you. And and, um, delving into Shauna's world has just been so interesting. And my hope for her is that her her crack, her fissure widens. And she's going to have a tough time, but she's going to come through it and perhaps have a richer world because of it. That would be ideal. It yeah. would. Let's settle on that, Annie. Let's settle on that. <laughs> so nice to talk to you. And you.
We hope you found this conversation as absorbing as we did. Our thanks to everyone involved and our sound designer, Ian Armstrong, and editor, Fraser Youngson. This podcast is produced by She Wants a Dog with support from our commissioning partner, Nottingham Playhouse and funder, Arts Council of England. Thank you. To find out more about the series and other She Wants a Dog series, follow us on social media at She Wants a Dog or visit our website, shewantsadogpodcasts.com. Don't forget to listen to all five plays in the series and look out for other series from us, including Sick Babe, Exploring Life with Invisible Disabilities and The Perverts Podcast, a queer audio cabaret. And please do rate, subscribe and share if you enjoyed these and join us again for more extraordinary explorations into a subject that affects us all, death.